Mark 4, 35-41 On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them on the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When we're faced by hardship, when we're, we're hit by, by sort of a proverbial storm, when we suffer maybe a whirlwind of chaos, when everything just seems to be out of order, not as it should be, when we wonder in the midst of it, is God there? Where is God? Is he here? Does he care? And so we're going to pick up in our series that we've been going through in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 35, as we just read. And at this point, Jesus and his disciples, they're going to find themselves in the middle of a storm, in the middle of complete chaos. And we're going to look at who Jesus is in light of this situation and what that means for us today. And so I'm going to walk you through four points this morning. Uh, first, we're going to look at the premise of the storm then the power of God over the storm, then the presence of God in the storm, and lastly, the plan of God through the storm. And so let's look at that first one, the premise of the storm. Read verse 35 again with me. It says, On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, to his disciples, let us go across to, to the other side of, of the sea. And leaving the crowd, uh, the crowd that he was speaking to and teaching, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. The other bo- and other boats were with him. So what's happening here? Now, if you, if you remember, if you've been with us, you know that at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus sort of declared the main message that he came to bring. We see it repeated again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark. We see it displayed in his actions as he unfolds the message that he bring, came to bring. And that message that he came, that message that he proclaimed in Mark chapter 1 was, was this, that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying that with his coming, that with the start of his ministry, now the kingdom of God that people have been longing for, living in darkness, longing for a kingdom of light, that kingdom is now near. That kingdom is now at hand. That's another way of Jesus saying that he came to fix all that is broken in our world and to bring rebels like us back under the rule and reign of a good and loving God. And he shows us, Jesus shows us again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark as we've seen that the power of his kingdom is not defined by force like most kingdoms, but by, but by love. We saw Jesus goes out teaching good news in the synagogues. He's performing miracles out on the streets. And and Jesus speaks a word of healing. He's healing people. He speaks a word of healing and bodies obey. And they're they're healed. 
We've seen illnesses obey him. When Peter's mom is sick and Jesus heals her, we've seen him rebuke demons and they obey him. But what Jesus does next here in Mark chapter 4, at the end of Mark chapter 4, what he does next really shocks the disciples. Because what he does next is categorically different than anything that he's done so far. What Jesus does here in our passage this morning, the, the obedience that he, he, he brings about from nature is just bringing it to the next level. You see, everything up till this point might be, but it could be possibly maybe easy to, to, to doubt or, or sort of explain away. Like a sick person's healed, and you could say like, well, yeah, well, like, how do we know they were really sick? You know, how do we know Peter's mom was really sick? A cripple can, can suddenly walk when he's lowered through the roof by his friends. And, and it's like, yeah, but, but do we, did we, did they really know that he was crippled before, right? It says he was crippled for, for, for almost his whole life. Did we, do we really know that? How do we know that? And his critics, we've seen again and again, they're pressing into that. Jesus' critics, his, his sort of haters that were just sort of criticizing him every, every step of the way, they're pressing into that. They're accusing Jesus of misleading others with, with tricks, but here, in this passage, when Jesus calms and stills a storm, that is on a whole nother category in and of itself. And it floors the disciples. It causes them to tremble. In the last verse, we see it causes them to consider, wait, who is this guy? Right? Who is this guy that we've been following around? Their minds are totally blown. They thought they knew who he was before, but then he just blows their mind with this, with this instance and in this passage. And here we see in this, uh, in this collection of verses, we see the unparalleled power of Jesus. A whole category unto himself. So far, the gospel of Mark has been pretty fast-paced, but right here, Mark almost, he takes steps back from the, from the action that he keeps uh, uh, unfolding that in previous chapters, and he almost, he almost takes a step back and in great detail, in greater detail than anything he's written up until this point. In greater detail, at this point, he describes the events in this passage. Jesus had just been unpacking the parables about the kingdom, about how the gospel of the kingdom is like a small seed, a vulnerable thing, and about how it has a potential in the right circumstances for incredible growth. And here, now Jesus has taken the seed of the gospel that he's been teaching them to the other side of the lake to take the good news to a whole other group in the region that still needs to hear the news of the kingdom. And in doing so, Jesus takes this small group of vulnerable dudes and he leads them into the sea to face a storm. And man, that's, that's just life, Right? That's, that's, that's just how life works, where we, we are constantly called to go out into the unknown. We're called to go out into the chaos. You see, these disciples who've been following Jesus around, they watched him wow the crowds with his healing and with his teaching. And Jesus, just a few verses earlier, he sat down with his disciples. Apart from the crowd, apart from the great crowd, he, he sat down with his disciples, his inner crowd, and he taught them the full meaning of his parables. He says, look, I don't want you guys to miss what these other people were not willing to press in on, right? And, and these disciples, this group that are on the boat with him, they probably would have loved to stay there in that, in that little huddle, right? 
they probably would have loved to stay in that little holy huddle, to stay there on the hillside or on the shore to just sit with Jesus, to feed on his words, to learn from him. But Jesus leads them out from the shore into the boat and through a storm. And, 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 and here's what I don't want you to miss from that. You know, sometimes we hear like a, a teaching or a speaker or, or a sermon that sort of inspires us, right? Or we read a book or a devotional that, that challenges us. But we all have to get up from that place and just actually live out our faith in the real world. We all have to get up from that place and just actually live out our faith in the real world where things are hard, where things are unexpected, out of order, and sometimes just outright chaotic. And in the real world, there's sometimes, there's, there's storms, there's suffering, there's hardship that threatens to destroy us, that, that threatens to chip away at our faith. And that leads us into our next point where I want us to consider the power of God over the storm. The power of God over this storm, the power of God over storms in our lives. Read the next two verses with me. Verse 37, it says, A great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Um, so first, I mean, this is a fascinating scene, right? I want you to see first, like, let's, I want us to talk about the power of the storm itself, right? I know we said we're going to talk about the power of God over the storm, but let's talk about the power of this storm. All right. The Sea of Galilee, uh, to give you some, some context, is technically a really large freshwater lake. It's technically not a sea. It's really a really large lake. It's five times the size of the city of Rancho Santa Margarita. Right? So it's a pretty big lake, uh, but it's, it's a lake nonetheless. It's a freshwater lake, and it lies 700 feet below sea level, and it sits in the middle of this, this deep valley surrounded by high mountains. All, all on three sides, right? The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by these high mountains, and the sea itself is 700 feet below sea level. Now, why is that important? Because the warm currents that rise up from the lake and the cold currents that would frequently fall down on from the mountains, they would they frequently and very unexpectedly cause these really sharp, really biting, really just gnarly storms, really mini hurricanes, that would often sweep the surface of the water. Totally dangerous water to tread when that happens. And so you could say that the geography, the situation here, created a literal recipe for disaster, right? It's literally a recipe for disaster, like an actual natural disaster. And so when a storm came, it came hard. And when a storm came down, coming down from the mountain, it came fast, always unexpected. Like to this day, they've got these warning signs up outside this, of, this, of this lake, not to park your car near the coast for, for too long. You don't want to leave it there for more than a few hours, like right there on the coast, because, you know, you might check in for brunch, only to leave a couple hours and find like your car floating down the road, right? If a storm came, if a storm came in, like it can get that bad. That unexpected, both dangerous and unexpected. And the people that Jesus was talking to, his disciples, these first century Jews, they were not typically a seafaring people. 
They were not familiar with the open sea. They were primarily known as a desert people, spending generations wandering the desert. To them, the sea was a symbol of chaos, a symbol of evil, a symbol, a picture of the unknown, a place where you find unknown beasts and just complete chaos. It was the ultimate picture, the sea, the open sea, was an ultimate picture of something that is unpredictable and uncontrollable. And if that's the picture that you have, like the ancient Jews did at this time, if that's the picture you have of the sea, it's probably safe to say that if you're an ancient Jew, like the sea is not where you go on vacation, right? It's not where you go on vacation. Like for them, you would be thinking of Genesis 1 and how the sea at, before, as God was creating the world, the sea was, this was void. The, it was this worldwide blanket of primordial chaos before God decided to make sense of it and create order in the midst of that chaos. Like when they thought of the sea, this was the picture that was in their mind. In fact, God is the only one who has control over the chaos of the sea. Uh, I would turn to Psalm 93 uh, with me for a second. Psalm 93, uh, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. Uh, but in Psalm 93, um, let's, let's read this description of, um, of the Lord's power over uh, nature. It says in verse 1, the Lord reigns. The Lord Yahweh reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And so there's a, there's a, a picture here looking back to creation when God made the world. Verse 2, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea is who? The Lord on high is mighty. Mightier than the sea. Mightier than the waves. Mightier than the storms is the Lord on high. You see, this psalm, was a basically an, an old, old was a, the, the first century worship book. This was what God's people would sing from. These were the poems and songs that they would sing. And this song, this poem, Psalm 93, was about the Lord's power over creation, even, even the seas. It was meant to be a picture, a description of how mighty the Lord is. And to the ancient Jew, the sea was not a place for recreation. It was a place where God and evil clash. It was a place where the God that they know and have become intimately acquainted with and what all that is unknown and scary to them, that's where they clash. It was a reminder to them, the sea was a reminder to them that the world that we live in and even nature itself is marked by the effects of sin. And the disciples, they find themselves just totally ransacked totally hit unexpectedly by a terrifying storm in the middle of the sea. Read verse 37 again with me. It says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Verse 38, But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Now, really quick, the windstorm here, that word windstorm, uh, like lexical definition there is literally like almost a hurricane, right? A swirling hurricane. Uh, it arose. That's what it says. A windstorm arose. A hurricane arose. That means it gets, it gets bigger. 
it comes down on, on the, onto, the, onto the surface of the water. It's starting to grow. And the boat is tossing. It's filling up with water. And this boat was probably like eight feet wide. We got six guys typically is how they were made, rowing on, on each side. And so this is not a cruise ship, all right? This is more like a canoe, all right? And you don't want to fight face a hurricane in a, in a canoe. And then disciples, some of these were fishermen, but even them, they were thinking, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to perish. We are in trouble. And where is Jesus? He's asleep. He's asleep on a pillow. And this scene is just nuts, right? Totally bananas. The scene is just amazing. Like this craziness is happening. Jesus is asleep on a pillow. And the disciples, totally frantic, they wake him up and they ask, the rest of, read the rest of verse 38. It says, they woke him and they asked, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, Rabbi, do you not care that we're perishing? How does Jesus respond? Read verse 39. Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And what happened? The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now what's happened right there, this picture is just nothing short of of awesome. In like the truest sense of that word, Right? Not like pizza is awesome, right? But this, or this song is awesome, but like this is truly awesome. Like it is awe-inspiring. Jesus speaks to the elements of nature personally, like the way a master would command his servants. And this, this, this man, Jesus, this God-man, Jesus in the boat with them, what we see in this scene is that the, the, the sea, the wind, it obeys him. He has the power of the Lord God Almighty. He has the power of the Mighty One in Psalm 93. He has the power of the maker and sustainer of all heaven and all earth, the ruler of nature, the creator, the one who holds the authority to speak to nature and have it obey. Have it listen, have it heed his words. And when Jesus said, peace, be still, in the original Greek, you got to understand that there's two verbs going on here. One's a present imperative. One is a present or perfect passive imperative, which is just kind of grammar nerd talk, which tells us that what Jesus was literally commanding the waves is to say, hey, be still and stay still. Be still and stay still. A sense of authority, right? Sit down and shut it. That's what he's saying to the storm. Sit down and shut it. And you know what happens? <laughs> the storm listens. It stops. The storm, the waves, the wind responds to the power of his voice. They stop, and it says they, they, there was a great calm. They were smooth as glass. Great calm, literally translated in this, in this, in this paragraph, it, it, it's saying that you went from mega storm to mega calm. He literally rebuked the waves in the same way, using the same language that he rebuked the demon in, in Mark chapter 1. And it obeyed. Now, who is really the only one able to rebuke a wave? Who's the only one able to do that? 
Like we can't miss this point. Who's the only one able to do that? For them, as, as they're seeing this, it's, it's dawning on them. He's the one that the psalmist talks about in, in, in the Psalms. He's that one. He's the God of the whirlwind in Job. This is the big idea Mark wants his readers to see when he's writing this. Why he almost steps down and in greater detail than anything he's written so far describes what's happening here. The big idea he wants us to see is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the power of God in the flesh. He has the power to do what only the God who created the sea can do he's God in all of God's fullness in all of God's glory in all of God's power Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty Jesus had done many great things in front of his disciples but what happened here in this scene what happened here on this boat the first time, it makes them tremble. It makes them tremble. You see, the power of Jesus is so huge, so unexpected, so uncontrollable, so formidable, that at the end of this scene, they start to see Jesus as almost a stranger to them. They say in verse 41, who are you? Verse 41, read it with me. It says, they were filled with great fear after this happened. And they said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and sea obey him. They've been spending time with him. They've been hearing him teach. They've seen him perform miracles, uh, rebuke demons, heal cripples. Crowds, thousands of people are gathering to hear him on a hillside that is only populated by hundreds of people thousands from all over the place come to gather to hear him teach. And here, they, it's like they think they know who he is, but here they're like, who then is this? Who is this guy? Who did they think he was prior to this? Verse 38 says they thought he was a teacher, right? Which he is. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. Verse 38. So they, 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 they wake him up and they say, teacher, why are you asleep? Help us out here. But, but who was he? He was more than a teacher. He was the one who holds power over nature itself. The power of God in the storm is seen in the person of Jesus. And it leads us into our third point. I want us to see the presence of God in this storm. Now, there are some bad situations that we deal with, right? There's some bad situations, some storms that we deal with in life that where like if we sort of alter our course, if we change something, uh, then, then maybe we can, we can change that situation, right? But there are, we're, we're all well acquainted with the fact that there are really other moments in life where you're just completely helpless. There's nothing you can do to change the situation that you're in. You try you pray, you long for some type of change, for some type of intervention, and there, you know that there's, there's you, you and the people around you are just completely and utterly helpless to change the situation that you're in. And what do you do in a moment like that? What do you do in a moment like that? Like, what do you pray when you have no power to change your circumstances? Like, how many of us have been there? How many of us have been there? and where they're just completely helpless. But on, on the other hand, they're also dealing with this unexpected response from Jesus. 
they're dealing with this unexpected response from Jesus, their teacher. Like, how is he sleeping right now, right? They're wondering now, how is he asleep? How is he asleep? How is he not joining their freak out fest? So the disciples, they wake him up and they ask, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And what I love in this, and like we, we read passages like this, and we tend to sort of jump to sort of the moral of the story, right? Like what is the thing that we need to learn from it? But I, I love here that in here uh, we have that the disciples, people who've been following Jesus around, they, they, they come to him and they approach him and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And that, that posture, that sentiment, that that cry, that prayer, God, where are you? Don't you care? Is a prayer that we see repeated again and again all throughout the scriptures. There's entire books of the Bible that are just filled and saturated with words of people who are crying out to God, like, God, don't you care? Where are you in the midst of this? So many of the Psalms, the entire book of Job, the book of Lamentations, you got again and again all these places, Old Testament and New Testament, where God's people come to him and they say, God, don't you, don't you care that we're perishing? And I love, I love that the scriptures allow us to live in that tension. Allows us to be honest with what we're struggling with, with the doubts that we're dealing with, with the skepticism that we might have about who God is or whether he's good. And so they they press in and they ask, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, how many of you have felt like that? Or you've, you've felt like God is, is, is distant, right? How many of us have felt that way, where God just feels distant, like he doesn't care? Like, God, you don't, don't you care if I drown? That's what they were thinking. Don't you care if I drown? Don't you care if I survive this? Or maybe today you've asked questions like, God, don't you, don't you care about my health? Don't you care about my job, my ability to provide for myself and for my family? Don't you care about my financial needs? Don't you care about my heartache? I'm heartbroken right now. What do they lose faith in when they're, when they're pressing in? They're not losing faith in Jesus. I mean, they woke him up. They asked for his help. What they lost faith in was his goodness. What they lost faith in in this moment was that he was good to them. And that strikes at some point at the core of every disciple. At some point, like you may be asking this question where you're struggling with this idea. Like, is, I know who Jesus is. I believe that he's true. I know that he's God. I believe that he's my Lord. I call him my Savior. I believe he's saved me from my sin. He's reconciled me to God. But in this situation that I'm in, man, I'm struggling to see that he's good. And so we ask questions like that, where we doubt that Jesus could do something, that he's for our good. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, pastor theologian, he, 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 uh, he comments on this particular question that the disciples ask. Uh, and he says, using hyperbole, he says that this was the cruelest the cruelest, most unexpected question that they could have asked him because of the very reason he was, that he was in the boat. Indeed, the world was precisely because he cared for them. 
read that again. This question was the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason that he was in the boat, indeed the world, was precisely because he cared for them. Where is Jesus in the middle of all this? In the middle of it. He was in the boat. He was with them. Primarily, the bigger thing for us to see is that he was in the world. Jesus, the Son of God, was in the world with us. His name, his nickname, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. See, Jesus knew the power of God in him. He knew the plan of God before him. And this storm was nothing compared to that. This storm was nothing compared to the primary reason that Jesus came. The primary reason that he came. And that's why he's the only one not going crazy on this boat. He's the only one not freaking out on this boat. Because he knows there's something bigger going on here. There's hope on the other side. Not just a temporal hope that they'll taste in a few minutes, but a hope that he brings that will last for all eternity. There's this scene at the end of the the Disney movie, Moana. How many of you guys have seen it? Moana? Um, Where the heroine, uh, Moana... And, uh, you know, her, 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 her kind of pal, Maui the demigod, which, uh, to be clear, I mean, obviously, he's a demigod. I know this is obviously not a Christian worldview movie, right? Uh, more polytheistic pantheism, but still, it's a good movie, all right? So, but you've got the two heroes, Moana and Maui, and they're, at the end of the movie, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to defeat, to defeat sort of this, this giant uh, volcano villain, this, this villain who she's like spewing lava, she's throwing like lava rocks at them, and there's this crazy clash with Moana and Maui like against this, this giant uh, walking, raging volcano, all right? And at one point, at one point at the end of this crazy scene, you've got Moana, this character, she just has this surge of confidence, right? This otherworldly surge of confidence because she suddenly knows what it is that she needs to do. She knows what she needs to do to sort of defeat this, this villain. And, and so then she calmly starts to carry it out in, in, in pure confidence. And meanwhile, in the background, you've got Maui. He's freaking out, thinking that they're both going to die. And meanwhile, on the other side, you've got the lava monsters charging at Moana, thinking that it's going to win, that it's going to destroy, destroy all of them. And of course, Disney puts this whole scene in slow motion, right? In slow motion with calm, soothing music in the background, while Moana just remains calm on the foreground, just like walking in slow motion. And Maui is, and, and the villain is, Maui's freaking out in the background. The villain's closing in on the background. And, 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 and I was thinking about this scene this week, and I imagine, <laughs> I imagine that this scene at the end of March chapter four will kind of have this similar, like, otherworldly feel to it. If you were able to watch with a bird's eye view, this scene in slow motion, where the storm is relentlessly closing in, the boat is filling up with water. All the disciples in his boat and in the other boats around are freaking out. They're crying out in terror. They're like, we're going to perish. And Jesus wakes up, and in my imagination, doesn't say this, but in my imagination, he wakes up in pure confidence. He, he, he stretches, he yawns, he clears his throat maybe before rebuking nature's storm and says, peace, be still. 
Be still and stay still. Hey, storm, sit down and shut it. And then it does. And then it does. Everyone in this scene is freaking out. But Jesus, knowing what was on the other side, knowing that there was hope in the midst of this, says, peace be still. And did you notice that before Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples, they were afraid of what? Of dying, right? They were afraid of perishing. But after he calmed the storm, they were more afraid. They were more terrified of Jesus himself. Because they were in awe of his power. Remember verse 41? It says they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were filled with great fear, with a terror, knowing, asking themselves, who is this? It's like they didn't even know who he was anymore. The storm had great power, but man, Jesus' power is greater than that. His power is greater than that. They just thought they were going to die because of the storm. And here Jesus, in the boat, asleep next to them, makes the storm stop. The storm was uncontrollable, but in this moment they see, man, Jesus is more uncontrollable. They thought the storm was formidable, but Jesus is more formidable. His power has no limit. They've seen his power at work up until this point, but when he obeys, when he calls out to nature and nature obeys, heeds his voice, they're like, there's no limit to this guy's power. You know practically what that means for us? Practically what that means for us, like if Jesus has that kind of power, great raw power, then when he is walking us through a storm, he has the power to make it stop. If he walks us through a storm, he must have some type of divine reason for the hard things that we just don't understand. He can make it stop. He could have made it so that they totally avoided the storm. It was Jesus' idea to go into the boat, to go to the other side. He knew what he was leading them into. He could have had it avoided altogether. If he had the power over the wind and the sea, he could have stopped it before it came. But there was something for them to learn. There was something for them to know, to get acquainted with about themselves and primarily about who Jesus truly is that they could only see when they sit with him in a boat in the middle of a storm. The disciples ask the question, why don't you care? And Jesus responds, why don't you trust? Two questions, two worldviews, two realities. Jesus, why don't you care? Follower of Jesus, why don't you trust? Which question shapes the way that you live? Which question describes the posture of your heart this morning? Is it God, don't you care? Or do you preach to yourself, self, why don't you trust? Is he not worthy of your trust? 
Does he not have the power to earn your trust? This leads us into our last and final point where I want us to see now the plan of God through this storm. You see, following Jesus does not give us, like when we follow Jesus, sometimes we, we feel like following him gives us sort of like a proverbial parent's note to excuse us from having to walk through hard stuff, right? Sometimes we feel like following Jesus should make, allow us to not have to go through hard things. But God's love and God's power and God's promises does not promise us better circumstances. It doesn't. It doesn't promise us. God's love does not promise us better circumstances. What it promises us and offers us is better hope in the midst of our circumstances. You following? Right? God's love does not promise us better circumstances. That was never promised to us. What it does promise us is better hope, lasting hope, sure hope, strong hope, powerful hope in the midst of those circumstances. And so following Jesus is not a refuge from the hard stuff of life. It's just not. And if, you're, if that's the reason that you're following him because you think he's going to make the hard stuff go away, then man, you're going to be in for a rude awakening, right? Because look, until Jesus returns, I'm talking like second coming, until he returns at the end of time to restore all things, to usher in fully the kingdom of God. Until that day, at the end of time, both believers and unbelievers will continue to deal with the effects of sin on our world. And it doesn't mean that we don't pray. It doesn't mean we don't hope. It doesn't mean that God doesn't intervene and ask our pray- answer our prayers in miraculous and sometimes supernatural ways. But it means that our expectation should not be that we don't deal with the effects of sin in this world. We'll continue to walk through troubles of this world. If your view of Jesus is that he's going to spare you from the hard stuff of life, then you're not following the real Jesus. You're not. We will still endure sickness. We will still endure loss. Some of this, us in this room will taste what it's like to endure through cancer. We'll endure through disappointment, through heartache, through loss and depression. We'll find ourselves led into storms of life just like everyone else. But for the Christian, for the one who belongs to God through Jesus Christ, for the one who's filled with the Spirit, we will find ourselves led in the, in the storms of life just like everyone else, but free grace and forgiveness. Grace for all of life. Joy, real joy, not superficial joy, but real joy in the midst of suffering. A relationship with the living and true God. That is what our Savior has promised to give. And that is what he secured for us on the cross and through the resurrection. There is a greater storm, much more daunting than the one that these disciples had to walk through and endure. There is a greater storm, a more forbidable one than the one that they endured. It's a storm that every single person faces. A a storm that every person made in the image of God, every single person hangs in the balance of. 
It's not a storm on the sea of Galilee, but it's a storm on the sea of eternity. It's a storm of sin that rages in all of our hearts. Sin that separates us from our good, our just, our holy and loving God and maker. And because of our maker's great love for us, in spite of how truly unlovable we are deep down inside, because of the love that he has for us, in spite of how unlovable we are, because of that love, he came down in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came down from his throne, put on dirty human flesh, came as a baby, the son of God, and Jesus would grow up to live a life that we could never live. And he would eventually endure the ultimate storm. The ultimate storm of our sin and, 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 and death. He would endure that storm and the storm, he would endure the storm of God's justice against our sin that we deserve to deal with. But he'll deal with it on our behalf. And he did that when he stood in our place on a cross. The storm raged and it raged and it raged against him, the storm of God's wrath and justice because of his love for us. The storm raged until it eventually took his life. And on that day, on Good Friday, his, fed, his, his head wasn't, wasn't resting on a pillow, on a cushion. His head was slumped on a cross. But on the third day, his tomb was emptied. And at that moment, the ultimate storm was stilled. The ultimate storm we were spared from. And now, Jesus says that on the other side of the resurrection, to all of us, his good news for all of us on this side of the resurrection is peace. Be still. Be calm and stay calm. I want to close with a quote from uh, Tim Keller. He, he wrote this in a book called Jesus the King. It used to be called King's Cross, uh, incidentally. Uh, but Keller wrote on this passage of Scripture, he says, If you know that Jesus did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, then what makes you think that he would abandon you in, a much, in much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? And someday, of course, he will return and will still all storms for all eternity. And if you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know, you will know that he loves you. You will know that he cares. And then, and only then will you have the power to handle anything in life with poise. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.